Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball, the podcast where there is no offseason, and I'm talking about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording on a park bench on a beautiful day with birds chirping in the spring in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Los Angeles Dodgers center fielder Jock Peterson and Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin. For those of you who have been floating down the River Sully for the last few years, uh, this is the longest I've gone without doing a podcast in years. And it's, I'm not going to dwell on this because there's a lot I want to cover. You know, but I did the final daily podcast on the, the Sunday that the baseball season started. And then I did another one on Thursday. So it was not like, hey, you know, it's not like suddenly I was gone. Yeah, I just was a couple of days he didn't have Sully and then I was back on yapping my trap. But this is the first time I've had a whole week between the shows. And I got to say, it's it's a little strange for someone who's used to doing it every single day and to suddenly be like, okay, this is what it's like to have a week off. And so I've had a bunch of people tweeting at me saying, oh, when's the next show up? When's the next show up? It's up now. Obviously, you wouldn't be hearing me saying these things if I didn't put the show up now. But, oh, man, I got to be honest with you. This is going to take some getting used to. And here's how much it's got to getting used to from your pal Sully is that this is take two of me doing the opening because I realized that I said, I called it Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 day. Oh, so, you know, so now we're getting, you know, this, this whole week thing is something that is, uh, it's going to take some use, getting used to from your pal Sully. We're still very early in the season and it's, way too early to, to really know anything. I mean, does anyone really believe the Toronto Blue Jays are one of the worst teams in baseball? I mean, you could say, oh, they're, 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 they may have taken a step back from the team that went to back-to-back league championship series, but I, I still picked them to be a po- playoff team. You know, I mean, you look at the, the, the fact that they have the wild card standings now, I find to be absolutely you know, bizarre and hilarious right now. The wild card leaders uh, include the Twins, who would be tied in the American League Central. You know, it would include the Colorado Rockies. That the West is basically a race between the Diamondbacks and the Colorado Rockies. Now, I want to give the Diamondbacks a little bit of credit. They've won some games head-to-head against the Giants. And they've won seven of their first ten games. Now, do I think they're going to continue that? No. But it's nice to bank some of those games early. It's interesting. I saw, you know, the record is 7-3. and three, And when you look at the standings of any, you know, throughout the season, one of the last columns they usually have says L10, meaning the last ten games What's their record been for the last 10 games? And for the case of the Diamondbacks, it would be 7-3 and three right now because that's the only 10 games they've played so far. But the fact of the matter is you could look at any point in the year, some really bad teams will go 8-2 and two or 7-3 and three in a spell, 
as a really terrific team to go three and seven or two and eight in a spell. The key is, is there's 16 of those spells. There's 16 10 game spurts that you go on through a season. But it's 162 games. Shut up. You know what I mean. If you're, if, if we've got uh, 160 games in the season, then those last two games, well, you know, that's a coin toss. I'm not as good at math, and I figured saying, you know what, if you have 16 spurts during the season, and you can have as many good 10-game spurts in those 162 games, then you'll be all right. Then you'll be fine. Now, it's anyone's guess. I mean, on the one hand, the Diamondbacks have some of their good players back, and they have some good pitching. And maybe the Giants, who you know are difficult to figure out, won't be as good. Maybe the Dodgers will have the injury bug, and 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 maybe just maybe a team like the Diamondbacks can hold on. You see this every, you know. There's so many times you see a team that is like, oh, but you know, they'll they'll just don't worry. They'll fall. They'll fall. They'll fall. They'll fall. Whoa, they're in the playoffs. I remember in 2008. I've used this example before. The Red Sox had won the World Series in 2007. They looked even stronger in 2008. And I'm like, they're going to repeat as world champs. And the Rays got off to a super fast start. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. Oh, that's cute. That's cute. Oh, you're off to a nice start, Rays. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And the Sox took the lead by the All-Star Games. That's right. That's right. Don't you worry about a thing. It's okay. You see, it was all a fluke. It was all a little fluky fluke. And then I looked up and the Rays were in the damn World Series. Same thing happened with the Washington Nationals in 2012. When they were like, you know what? We may be 500 this year. We're certainly improving. But clearly, the Phillies are a terrific team. The Braves are a terrific team. The Marlins went on their big, huge spending spree, removing a new stadium and Ozzie Guillen as a manager. Do you know what? Best we can hope for is third place. So let's just go out, try to have a decent year. We'll shut down Strasburg in the, the middle of September, you know, so he doesn't burn his innings up. And, you know, by 2013, we'll be a contender. Well, the Marlins were an abject disaster. The Phillies fell apart and the Braves shot themselves in the foot. And then you're looking up and, and like the national, oh, they're off to a decent start, but yeah, they'll come back to earth. They'll come back to earth. They'll get back to earth. We'll still shut down Strasbourg. And wait, wait, what? Best record in the National League, really? Well, we shut down Strasbourg, right? So we're not going to use them in the postseason? Oh, our starting pitching got totally bombed by St. Louis? Oh, okay. Yeah, and the bullpen blew the final game. Oh, but do you know what? We're going to win so many pennants. Don't you worry about it. Well, we'll see how that goes. But sometimes you will see that team that you'll go like, ah, yeah, but they'll, they'll fall apart. Yeah, but they'll fall apart. And sometimes they don't fall apart. Do I think it's going to be the Diamondbacks? I don't know. We're only 10 games into the freaking season. Our taxes aren't due yet. It's tough to tell who's going to play in the fall when you're still looking at your H&R Block appointment going like, oh man, I'm cutting it close this year, but I still have a few days to go. 
With that being said, you look up and you say, will Colorado? Will Minnesota? Will the Angels? Team I didn't think were going to be good at all. I think the most interesting one, I brought up the Diamondbacks just because they do have some interesting players. And they have some players who were injured last year, like Pollock. And they had players who had disappointing years coming back and looking decent. So maybe, just maybe, they could take advantage. Minnesota intrigues me simply because they were good a few years ago. And they have so much young talent on their team. And so those are the two teams that I look at. They're off to the fast start. They're going like, all right. I know it's really early, but just keep a little eye on them. I got a philosophical question as I go through this weekly podcast. And this is going to sound, this is a big, broad question. But sometimes when you do a weekly one, you're not doing the minutia of the day-to-day. It makes sense to ask a big, broad question. So here's my big, broad question as I stand in the middle of this park in Palo Alto, California, pontificating about the questions of life. What is good? How do we determine if something is good or not? Because good is a subjective term. I like the things that I think taste good, for example, the plane is flying overhead, and you know what? For the first time in the weekly podcast, I'm going to say this phrase. I'm not even going to cut that out. Good is subjective. Something may, I may think something tastes really good. And not everyone will agree with what I think tastes really good. I'll give you an example. Anchovies on pizza. Awesome. The best. I can eat it with piles of... I can eat it with more anchovies than cheese. But there are other people who would immediately throw it away. There's some things that are subjective, like in terms of music, in terms of movies, in terms of television shows. And what we think of as good changes and evolves. And that's what I was really thinking about in terms of baseball. We understand that sometimes our tastes change. I mean, you think of some some music and songs or movies or TV shows are timeless. They survive the test of time. And then there's some things that don't because they reflect what was happening at that particular nanosecond. Something timeless like Casablanca or The Godfather or Star Wars, you know, those, those survive and, and multiple generations will re- revere them. Then you'll see a, like a movie like American Beauty. Try watching that now and not cringing. Well, that came out, it was a big hit. People are like, oh, it's amazingly well-written, amazingly well-acted. What a be one Oscars. Picture, director, actor, screenplay. It's a masterpiece, it's a masterpiece. And the guy who wrote it went on to make um, Six Feet Under, which is a great show. But you watch it now, and you go like, yikes! It's creepy, it's... it's it's, it's disturbing and not in a... Prof- the things that they thought they are being profound about are really kind of... No, no, it's uh, about a sexual predator. Really nothing much more deep about that than is it. And you watch it, man, we thought that was good then? Yeah, we thought that was good then. There's lots of things. There's lots of songs. There's lots of things you think you think that was good then. But one of the things about baseball, what you think is you're supposed to happen about baseball, 
is that there is a certain amount of objectivity and not subjectivity in terms of greatness and in terms of how we evaluate whether something is good or whether something is bad. And I think one of the things that has happened over the years as we've got to understand advanced stats, we've got to understand really how games are won and how runs are manufactured. And one of the things I think really frustrates some older and more traditional fans, and I think at one point it frustrated me as well, is we have seen the concept of what is good change. That the timelessness of this person achieved that, therefore that's good. It's concrete. It's in numbers. It's in black and white. And we've seen that change because we, we value different things. We understand that what we valued and what we appreciated at one term, at one point, may have been flawed. And that perhaps what we thought was something written in stone, written in concrete, that it's beyond, it's beyond debate. You won 20 games. You, you batted 300. You knocked in 100 runs. There is no debate that you are one of the best because you achieved those things. And understanding that perhaps the type of players that we appreciated at one point are not the types of players we appreciate now brings in a question of has subjectivity entered into it and maybe it hasn't it's just we've changed the criteria which scares people and shakes some of the enjoyment of baseball down to its foundation and i'm not even going to talk about comparing players today with honus wagner or Pie Trainer or Lou Gehrig or people from a previous, like, a long time ago. No, I'm going to go all the way back to 2011. 2011, a year before I began the daily podcast. Okay? This is still this decade. Within this decade, I've seen changes in how we view things and how we view people and how we view baseball. I used to do contribute to the Hardball Times a lot. And, and, and read the Hardball Times. It's a great site. There's a lot of great writing there. And I used to contribute there. And who knows? Maybe I'll contribute there again. Your pal Sully doesn't know. But I wrote a piece there back in 2011 about the players who I thought had, as I said, they did the hard part of their Hall of Fame candidacy. And now all they have to do is not get hurt and pile up numbers. And I talked about players from my youth like Freddie Lynn or Fernando Valenzuela or Brett Saberhagen, people who just came out of the gate guns ablazing. By their mid-twenties were the elites, putting together elite season after elite season. Until finally, you're like, oh man, if they can just stay healthy, they're going to go in the Hall of Fame because they've got the tough parts of the resume over. The MVPs, the Cy Youngs, the postseason heroics and everything. 
And in it, I was talking about the players who I felt had already done the hard part of their Cy Young candidacy, of their, of their Hall of Fame candidacy, sorry. And now all they have to do is not get touched. Don't get hurt. Just don't get hurt. And it's funny, some of the players that I looked at, I looked at Felix Hernandez was one. Tim Lincecum was one. Now, Lincecum now has no shot at the Hall of Fame. But remember, he started off with multiple Cy Youngs and became a World Series hero and all that stuff. I said John Lester. It's interesting. John Lester, who has been wonderful since and has been the postseason hero since several times over. But now I have trouble thinking of him as a Hall of Famer. And, you know, you see some of the ones who got off the great starts like you know, uh, uh, Joe Maurer, and I saw CeCe Sabathie was on there, and Johan Santana. And then, and who else did I have on here? I had Santana. Well, I have actually printed out here. You probably printed this out because I'm old. Chase Sutley was one. Adam Wainwright was one. Oddly, I didn't see, I didn't put Miguel Cabrera, who I thought, like, well, you know, he's had some good years, but he really needs to put the team on his back, because I hadn't, didn't see him quite at that other level. I didn't see him at the level of someone like Ryan Howard. I had Ryan Howard on there. And that was the name that caught my eye. And the fact that he was an MVP several times over, or he won an MVP, top five MVP finishes, playoff MVP, um, you know, a lot of narrative stuff attached to him. And at the time, that was how he was looked upon by people except by a small fringe of the stat heads. He got, he got big hits. He got big home runs. Drove in tons of runs. And you looked at him and said, yeah, he's one of the elite players in the game. And none of those stats have changed. Superman didn't fly around the earth and spin the earth backwards and suddenly make, uh, suddenly reverse some stats for him. They're all, they're written in stone. Like the stats of Honus Wagner, they haven't changed. But now when we look at him, we realize he wasn't even the most valuable player on his own team that he happened to be hitting at the spot where he could drive in these runs, but Ugly was more valuable. Rollins was more valuable. And this is, I'm not, a, I'm not even bringing up war because I, I still don't know how war is calculated. I don't refer to that. But you see that the all-around game that he had, the all-around numbers that he put up, the value that he had, while he was, he was not a bad player, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a big gray area between potential Hall of Famer and bad player. You know, he did get a bunch of home runs. He was a guy who could clunk one out of the park. But he was struck out too much. He was, he was in many ways a one-dimensional player, or maybe at the most two. He didn't add anything in defense. He wasn't an all-around hitter. But we still, we, how we evaluated what was good is not the way we evaluate it now. I'll tell you another player 
going back to my youth, and I have talked about this before, I undervalued Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs played on my team. I'm a Red Sox fan. His prime was with the Red Sox. He was one of the most incredible all-round offensive players that I ever saw, and I didn't know it. There was one year that Mike Greenwell came in second in the MVP vote. And Mike Greenwell still carouses about how the fact that Jose Canseco won the MVP that year, not Mike Greenwell, and it should be Mike Greenwell's. Mike, I got news for you. You weren't the best player on that team in 1988. Wade Boggs was the best hitter. Wade Boggs led the league in OPS, which for those of you, I'm, I'm guessing most of you know what that means, but that's a combination of on-base percentage and slugging. And when you lead, you have, when, you're, when you're leading in that, when you add those two together, yes, you have to, have a very, you have to walk a lot and get a lot of hits, and that helps, but you also have to have the huge slugging percentage. And what up slugging percentage is home runs. If you had a ton of home runs... You're going to have a giant slugging percentage. If you've got a bunch of doubles and triples, that helps. And the player with the highest OPS combination of on-base and power in 1988 was Boggs. Not Conseco with his 40 home runs. It was Boggs. And he did it with five homers. Which meant he was getting on base and doubling like crazy and scoring more runs, getting on base more than anyone, and scoring more runs than anyone. And while that was happening, I was one of the muttonheads who would criticize Boggs. He's selfish. He doesn't get the big hits. He should hit more homers. He should drive in more runs. He was the best leadoff hitter not named Ricky Henderson playing in the American League. And naturally was batting third most of the time. Again, his stats haven't changed. But what is good? What is good? The illusion of baseball is has a sense of permanence. That the numbers that you wear like a badge of honor represent your greatness distilled to unquestionably great stats is an illusion in itself. You know, all the stats of everyone pre-integration has to have a gigantic asterisk next to it. People want to put an asterisk next to the people who hit the home runs in the steroid era, which in many ways is the comes down to the reason that most of the traditionalists and the old-timers hate the steroid era. Because they say, well, that just destroys this sense that is so near and dear to so many people. This sense that, well, these numbers are not on a level playing field. But were they ever? Were they ever? Before integration, were the numbers on a level playing field? When you have someone playing in a ballpark like Chuck Klein who played for the Phillies where the right field fence was, I think, four feet away from home plate, hitting home runs, or if you're a right-handed hitter, knocking the balls off of the wall at Fenway Park 
or you're a left-handed power hitter wrapping it around the, the right field pole at, at Yankee Stadium, if you're a pitcher pitching for the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium, which is a great pitcher's ballpark, and lo and behold, they have Hall of Famers pitching there, I mean, it's that, the, the idea of a level playing field is ludicrous. I mean, if you're a hitter and you're facing Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale and all of them, is that the same as going to Coors Field and having Kevin Ritz pitch to you? Do you know who Kevin Ritz is? He was like the best pitcher on the Rockies for like a year or so, and his ERA was a freaking social security number. And a home run hit off of him counts as much as a home run hit off of Randy Johnson. There's no level playing field. There's no sense of, you know, fairness in terms of what these numbers mean. What if, I mean, what if you're playing against a team that has terrible defense? What if you're playing against a team where there were bad calls or a little bloop or someone catches a deep line drive diving? It's not fair. And there's maybe no way we can ever have a objective point of view of what's good. Baseball had that illusion, and a lot of people cherish that. That's why when you reach 3,000 hits, 300 wins, 500 home runs, whatever the number it is that means so much to you, why it meant so much is that no one can take that away. I'm one of the greats. But are you? Maybe. Maybe not. It's kind of subjective. So I got something here in the Twitterverse uh, wanting me to talk about the teams that should have won. And the specific one, I'm going to go on, I'm going to check on the tweets right now. Um, blah, blah, blah. I probably should have taken a second, uh, maybe there's another music spin I can put on here. Um, oh, here it is. Evan, Evan Schnell, who has the Twitter handle AmHest. I don't know what any of this means. Your Twitter handles are something like A-M-H-E-S-T. You know what? I don't know what you're talking about. I really, really hope you don't expect me to know what the hell you're talking about because your Twitter handle is AmHest. My, my uh, uh, Twitter handle, Sully Baseball. Go to Sully Baseball. That's on Twitter. Easy to remember. And you go, I wonder why... Sully, who talks about baseball and whose podcast is called Sully Baseball, has a Twitter that's handle called Sully Baseball. Very easy to figure out. Evan Schnell, Amhest, what are you going to do? Um, he says, he gave me a suggestion for the teams that should have won. Obviously, he's a Twins fan. 2006 Twins should have. Three players were Hall of Fame bound before injuries, as well as greats like Liriano, Perkins, and Hunter. And it's funny, I have, I, I was thinking about what team I was going to do next, and I, I was going to do, uh, I, I think I was going to do the Dodgers next, but, you know, what the heck, I got a, I got a request for this, and might as well talk about it. Now, the Minnesota Twins were the Washington Senators. They were the Washington Senators 
until a bizarre Freaky Friday situation took place. In 1960, there was a team called the Washington Senators playing in the American League. In 1961, there was still a team called the Washington Senators playing, and then there was a team called the Minnesota Twins. Ah, well, obviously, we know what happened. Baseball expanded that year, and they created a team called the Minnesota Twins. You would think that, but that's actually not what happened. The team that were the Senators became the Twins, and they expanded into Washington. So Washington got the expansion team, and Minnesota got the established team. So when you sit there, like you, you could be a Senators fan. Yeah, I'm a Senators fan. I'm still a Senators fan, but all the players are different. The management is different, and it's technically a new team. And I've always found that to be weird. And I've always felt that what they should have done was just say, okay, we're, the new team is in Washington. The team that was in Minnesota that is in Washington is still Minnesota. But you know what? Let's just say, let's just continue the history because the history of the Senators stops in 61 but starts with a different franchise that has the same name. I can't even tell you how weird that is. I can't even tell you how weird that is. Just have the history of the Senators go from the beginning of the American League right up until the point where the Senators moved to Texas. Why make things more confusing? Baseball can be confusing enough. And it also has led to this whole, when I'm trying to figure out which fan base is suffering the most, you got this weird whole thing of, well, should it be Washington? Should it be Washington? Because they had the Senators, but now they have the Nationals, and they haven't won, but that's the wrong franchise. It was so weird. Anyway, um, over the years, the Twins have stunk a lot. And over the years, the Twins have had some decent teams. When I was growing up in the late 70s and through the 80s, it never occurred to me the Twins would ever be in the playoffs. There were just some teams that were there for to fill out your baseball card pack and to have Toby Hara and Roy Smalley play for them. You know, there were players like, oh, yeah, they play on the Twins. Okay, well, the Twins fill out the old proverbial schedule. But it's not like they're going to win anything. The Indians were that way. The Rangers were that way. The, uh, you know, the Padres were that way. You know, for the most part, the Giants were that way with me growing up. And the Blue Jays and the Mariners were that way. I remember being stunned when the Padres made the postseason. like, man, that's weird. It didn't occur to me that they were allowed to. And then you had 87. In 1987, I will come off and say, I liked the 87 Twins, mainly because they had Don Baylor on them. And Don Baylor was a member of the 86 Red Sox, and so therefore he could do no wrong in my eyes. The 87 Twins, and I don't want anyone to be offended by this statement, because as I said, I rooted for them. But the 87 Twins were the worst world champion I ever saw in my life. But, Sally, you know the Cardinals actually won fewer games when they won the World Series in 2006. Shut up. This is not about the concrete numbers, okay? That Cardinals team was not a bad team. They had a terrible losing streak by the end of the season. 
but I will go to my grave, and hopefully I won't have to go to my grave saying this, they had more talent than the 87 Twins. The 87 Twins were fun. They were fat, a lot of them. They looked like softball players. They were designed for their ballpark to hit the snot out of the ball. They had no depth in their pitching staff. And they absolutely took, and, and, and they were the fifth, in terms of win-loss record, were the fifth best team in the American League. Fifth! But the way the divisions were laid out, they were the Western champion. If the divisions were laid out differently, and you had a central division, the Brewers would have won the central in 1987. And the Twins would have been like, oh, look at that, the Twins had a winning season. How cute. Instead, they went, they beat a absolutely exhausted Tigers team and a depleted Cardinal team. But they also, back then, remember people were complaining about the all-star game determining who had home field advantage? Back then, home field advantage flip-flopped each year, not just for the World Series, but for the ALCS and NLCS as well. The Tigers had the best record in baseball and started the ALCS on the road to a Twins team that didn't win 86 games. And the Twins won every single home game in the postseason, and they happened to win two games in Detroit, and so therefore they won the pennant, they won the World Series. Now, it's super cool that a lot of big-time veterans who never won a World Series elsewhere wound up winning a World Series in 87. Baylor was one, Roy Smalley won, Joe Necro won, and, and, and veterans with long careers like Dan Schatzetter won, and um, yeah, there's a few others I'll throw out there. But when they won that World Series, it was just weird. It's like, that's the world champions? Really? Now, when they won in 1991, that was a terrific team, and a team that won one of the great World Series of all time. Now, in terms of teams that should have won, yeah, you can point to that team in 1965 that got to Game 7 of the World Series and lost 2-0 to Sandy Koufax in Game 7. And there were lots of you know, twin greats on that team. But I got to think about the modern twins and how a championship would have been, oh, incredible. Truly incredible. Now, I think there's a wonderful irony, because I brought up the 2002 Twins, and don't worry, Cubs fan with an eight, who is worried when I have multiple years as the teams that should have won. I'm not picking the 2002 Twins here. But, Moneyball, a film that I like, but I do not treat it as if it's a documentary. Moneyball had the sad ending that this lovable group of A's players fell short just again. This time, not to the big spend in New York Yankees, but to the Twins. And the strange irony is, the Twins were incredible underdogs to the A's that year. And in some ways, as good as Brad Pitt was, and as much as our bottom's lip quivered when his little girl started singing, I'm just a little girl stuck in the middle of life, fizzling, or whatever the hell she was singing, 
that the Twins were actually the better story that year than the 2002 A's because of what had happened the year before. The Twins had a winning season in 2001, but after the 2001 World Series, perpetually tone-deaf, one-time car salesman Bud Selig, who had commandeered the role of commissioner in a coup d'etat, I'm not a big Bud Selig fan, said that baseball was going to go through a contraction. The greatest Debbie Downer after the most exciting World Series we had seen in years. Baseball was going to go through a contraction. And it looked like two teams were under fire for the contraction. It looked like the Expos, who had no owner, who had no hope or anything like that. And an American League team had to be contracted as well. And instead of pointing to the obvious one, the Tampa Bay Rays, who were the Devil Rays at the time, and not drawing anything, and it had no f- history or no... Um, I mean, you hate to take anything away from a fan base, but it just looked like it wasn't working there. All eyes pointed towards the Minnesota Twins. That they were going to contract the Twins. That beyond the fact that they had a winning season and were actually an impressive team the year before, that they were going to be folded, the tent taken down, Goodbye. Sell off for parts. And ultimately the contraction was taken off the table, but it it hung over the team like a noose. And the year after they were threatened with contraction, they got to within three wins of the World Series. I was rooting so hard for the Twins to win that series against the Angels because I thought that would have been the greatest story. Like, oh, you're going to contract us? Well, F you. We're going to go to the World Series. And I knew if they won the World Series, they would be a franchise that uh, very few franchises in history have won a World Series title in three consecutive decades. If they won in 87 and 91 and the year after they were threatened to be contracted... How glorious would that be? Is it contracted? They're one of the great champions of baseball history. Now, it didn't happen. And no doubt, Ron Gardenhire was driving home listening to his girl saying, I'm just a little touching a little. But that's not the point. The point is it was a great story. And the team that faced contraction going into the 2002 season wound up going to the postseason in 2002, 2004. Uh, no, 2002, let's get this right, Sully. 2003, yeah, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2006. They lost a one-game playoff in 2008. They won a one-game playoff in 2009, and they went to the postseason in 2010. A decade of success and division championships of which everyone remembers the mighty twins, right? Come on without come on within you ain't seen nothing like the mighty twins, am I right? No, of course I'm not right virtually nobody remembers that nobody and a big reason is is after defeating the A's in the end of the second act of Moneyball, they won one game in the ALCS against the Angels. They won one game in the division series against the Yankees in 2003. They won one game 
in the division series against the Yankees in 2004. They won three playoff games the rest of the decade. The rest of the games, they got swept. Boom. And each one of those series, they won game one and then lost the rest. Nobody remembers when you lose the first round and get swept. Even fan bases forget. I've had to remember a couple of times when the Red Sox got swept out of the first round of the playoffs. We're like, oh, Christ, yeah, they played in 2009, didn't they? Yeah, I totally forgot about that team. That's right. I totally forgot about that team. So the Twins, had they won one pennant, had they won one World Series in the 2000s, would have capped off a storyline that said they've gone from contraction to the top of the mountain to finally having a brand new stadium. And I was thinking about the teams and the combination of teams and the 2004, they actually were on the verge of taking a 2-0 lead on the Yankees. And there was a couple times they put up a good fight even when they got swept. And the year in 2008, a year where there was no Yankees to be going in, and they lost that one-game playoff to the Chicago White Sox, one to nothing. And would the Twins and the Rays, would they have... Would they have beaten the Rays in a, in a division series? I don't know. That would have been an amazing series if for no other reason they would have had the two ugliest domes in the history of baseball. And no need to send a blimp as we look down to see the, the domes. But man, that 2006 season, that was the year that it all seemed to come together. It all seemed to come together because of the players on the team. Justin Morneau won the MVP. And remember when I was talking about how we determine MVPs and good players or bad players and how that changes? Remember how I said that earlier? Well, that's certainly the case for Morneau, who won the MVP of the American League, and you could make a really good case he wouldn't crack the top three most valuable twins on that team when you consider Johan Santana was the league's best pitcher, that Joe Maurer was the league's best catcher, Joe Nathan was one of the elite closers, Torrey Hunter was one of the great center fielders, that that team was stacked. It was a star-studded team. Joe Maurer posted a 936 OPS at catcher and was a homegrown player from Minnesota. And I downplayed you know, more no season, but he had 34 home runs. He batted 934. That's not so bad. And you had players like Luis Casillo, Michael Kadire, Jason Bartley. You had a bunch of players on that team who were damn, damn good. And, you know, you looked at that team, and in 2006... When you saw that they were one of that they were a contender, and they were a wild card contender for most of the year with all this great talent that they had on the team, but there were so many elements were working on that team, and they were, you know, they they looked like they were going to be the wild card team. They looked like they were going to be the team that was going to you know get in there. 
and you know probably face the Yankees and probably get clobbered in the first round. But down the stretch, they started playing amazing. Even when they lost Francisco Liriano, they played amazing. And they took 16 out of 18 interleague games to basically push themselves into the American League Central logjam with the Tigers and the White Sox. And down the stretch, the Tigers just needed to win one game and they would have clinched the Central. But they got swept. And the Twins moved into a first-place tie on the last day of the season. And then, on game 162, the Twins were in first place by themselves for the only day of the season. But they won the division. The Tigers had to face the mighty Yankees. And the Twins went on to face the A's. And this looked like, okay, they're avoiding their nemesis, the Yankees. They're facing the A's. And they have this star-studded team. And it looked like the pennant was theirs. A chance to win this series was theirs because it, when it was clear the Tigers were given the Yankees fits, surprisingly in the postseason, all the Twins had to do was beat Oakland and force that Detroit-Minnesota showdown in the ALCS. And what happened? The only time in the Moneyball era the A's won a playoff series. And it was against the 06 Twins. Frank Thomas, Frank Thomas, isn't he with the White Sox? Should be. He was with the A's. And he clubbed the hell out of the ball. And the A's swept them. They got swept. And with that, the best chance the Twins had to have not only that championship that would have been the ultimate middle finger to the contraction birds, but it also seemed like it was the only time they had that whole cast together. Injuries to Morneau prevented him from playing in some of the postseasons. Maurer was too young to be playing in other postseasons. Santana was eventually traded away. It seemed like the one time they had Maurer at his full strength, Hunter at his full strength, Santana at his full strength, Nathan full strength, Morneau full strength. And the stars aligned in terms of who will be playing and where they'll be playing. Everything lined up in 2006. And had they advanced, they probably would have had the Tigers number and faced that 2006 Cardinal team that I alluded to may have had more talent than the 87 Twins. But this would have been the team that justified it all. You would have had that 2002 team sort of say, oh, we're not getting being contracted. We're not getting anywhere. And then you had the frustration of losing in 03 and 04 and missing out in the postseason in 05. But then to thump your chest and say in 06, it was there. A team that won like 83, 84 games, whatever the hell the Cardinals won, wound up being crowned. It should have been the Twins. To have the Twins etch their name 
with the franchises that have won in three consecutive decades. To have the Twins say, we're not only a team that can contend, we can develop our own stars and have all-time great players. Santana, Maurer, Morno, Hunter, all these players would have been so loved in the history of Minnesota fandom. And they probably will be. But in the end, Maurer is going to be, he's not a Hall of Famer anymore. When I did that article for Hardball Times, he was one of the people I said had done the hard part of his Hall of Fame career. Well, he's not going to be. He's now a decent hitting first baseman, not a superstar catcher. Morno's career has gone from, he's kicked around from place to place. You know, sometimes has a nice half season here, a nice half season there. Hunter wound up going to the Angels and is best remembered for flipping over the bullpen wall in that series against the Red Sox. And Santana wound up being traded to the Mets and seeing his career end with a series of frustrating injuries of a pitcher who looked like he was going to be one of the all-time greats and instead is in the category of the likes of Valenzuela, like Lincecum, who I mentioned earlier, who started off great and then flamed out. To win in the Metrodome again. To win to show, yeah, we can contend. We can win. That 06 Twins team, everything was pointing their way. And I contend it would have been one of the great baseball stories of the decade. And that one title would have softened all the other losses. Who won the World Series in 2002? Was it the Moneyball A's? Was it the Don't Contract Me Twins? No, it was the Angels. And that Angels title in 2002 bought dispensation that Mike Sosha is still showering in. He hasn't won a pennant since then. He's gone to the ALCS twice since then. They've lost so many first-round series. 04, 07, 08, 14. But because he has that title, oh, he's St. Sosha. That would have been garden hire. That would have been this whole Twins decade. They threatened him with contraction, and they went to the playoffs the next year and won it all in 2006. That's such a great story, I could convince Brad Pitt to star in it. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And that's a team that I contend really should have won. So, hey, who suggested that? That would be Amhast, Evan Schnell. Thanks for contributing. And if you want me to talk about your team and what team should have won, let me know via Twitter. So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, where I've been iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Podcast, I almost said daily again, that is dropping on what the hell is today's date? The 13th day of April 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please, I implore you, call me Sully.